0: So often, when you're in your spacesuit, the communication will stop. And so, all you have is the sound of the spacesuit and of your own breathing and heart. And it's much like when you're listening to a radio broadcast, it's kind of like dead air. One of my flights to the Hubble Space Telescope, I had a very clever commander who had the foresight to think about bringing the soundtrack from 2001, A Space Odyssey. And he played that song when we were just about to redeploy the Hubble Space Telescope. He hadn't told us he was gonna do this. The music started playing in the cockpit. just as we let go of the Hubble Space Telescope and it flew right over the top of the cockpit as it flew away and I'll never forget that moment. It was just this incredible experience.
1: surpasses every experience of my life. It is the most magnificent thing that that I've had a chance to do in my entire life, to be outside holding on to a spaceship with one hand in between the world and the universe. And I, I count myself immensely lucky to have actually done that twice.
2: You're going out there for some serious work, and it is dangerous, you know, you are in space. And then, of course, there's the actual choreography of how you're going to go out and change out these parts or do whatever you need to do out in space.
1: Well, sometimes when you're in space, you hear a taxi driver in Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> they're, they're, they're on the same frequency as the little radio that's, uh, that's in the spacesuit. it's kind of weird.
3: When I was on the space station, um, I did miss some of the sounds or the smells that, that you have on, on Earth, specifically because you don't have them.
1: Spacewalking is like nothing else. It's maybe very slightly like scuba diving, but, but if you could somehow combine scuba diving with mountain climbing and
4: small engine repair. I'm Glenn Fremantle. I work in the movies as a sound designer, sound supervisor. I worked a film called Gravity, which I was very lucky enough to win an Academy Award and a British Academy Award as well. You can create um, unease, sort of senses of joy, scare. You can do all these things with sound. You using the sound to, to draw people into the, what you want them to be feeling. I was approached by um, Alfonso Cuaron to go and meet him. He's the director of uh, Gravity. And I remember him sitting down he said, well, we've got a problem, really, because uh, there is no sound in space, so what are we going to do, you know? When you take the picture away, I think they sound cool. I hope that when real astronauts listen to it, they feel a sense. I mean, not ever been there, I can't be 100% sure, but we did try to make it feel as real as possible from the perspective that we have.
0: Greetings, my name is Steve Smith. I'm a NASA astronaut. I have had the opportunity to fly in space four times and do seven spacewalks. Well, thank you so much for sending the clip from Gravity where there was a drilling sequence going on. And I can tell you that the, the hair basically stood up on my arms because it brought back so many memories of spacewalks for a couple reasons. One is the clip showed how, in general, the, the, the noise that we experience here on Earth in our daily lives was gone. It was kind of a quiet Moment with this humming in the background. But then occasionally you would hear something more come up. It was almost like a a shudder or an echo from the activities going outside. And that's exactly what space flight is like when you're doing a spacewalk. You can't hear sounds come to you as you can without a helmet on and with air surrounding you. Instead, they're kind of transferred to you as a vibration. So in this sound clip, for example, there was some drilling going on and it was almost like a
1: Hi, my name is uh, Chris Hadfield. I was an astronaut with uh, the Canadian Space Agency for 21 years. And uh, flew in space three times, did two spacewalks, and commanded the International Space Station. And and some people also know me by by, uh, doing a cover of a David Bowie tune. Most of the stuff that we do in space, you can do inside. But once in a while, we have to go outside and do things by hand. It requires human dexterity or human cleverness. If you're buying uh, life insurance as an astronaut, one of the main questions that Lloyds of London asks you is, uh, are you doing any spacewalks? Because the premiums go up. It's a dangerous thing to do because you don't have the protection of the spaceship anymore, just the cloth of the spacesuit itself. The first human being to ever take that enormous risk of going out on a spacewalk was a guy named Alexei. Uh, Alexei Arkipovich uh, Leonov, excellent guy. In March of 65, he was the first human being to see the world through just the thinness of the plastic of his visor. When uh, the Soviets and Alexei did their very first spacewalk, they had no idea what they were doing. They'd guessed, you know, and they'd tried to pretend and simulate on the world, but they had nobody to ask. The most critical thing they got wrong was they didn't recognize that when Alexei's suit was fully pressurized, the amount it would expand like an overinflated balloon that would burst or, or fill up. And so, when he tried to come back inside, his feet had sort of pulled out of the feet of the suit. and His hands had sort of pulled out of the hands of the suit because it had grown so much. He depressurized his suit partway and through a huge physical effort, managed to worm him his way back inside. He and his crewmate got the hatch closed and repressurized, and he survived it. He was only outside for a little over 12 minutes. It was the very first step out into the rest of the universe. He barely survived it. But
0: uh, 50 years ago, that was what Alexei did. When Ed White did the first American spacewalk shortly after Alexei Leonov's initial spacewalk for the Russians, it was recorded live, and if you listen to the audio of this spacewalk, he is very emotional, very happy. Okay, I'm out. Okay, he's out. He's close to I feel like a million dollars. This
4: is the greatest experience. It's just tremendous. We are very thankful to have the hard experience to doing this.
0: And then it's clear that it's time for him to come back in. But he really didn't want to. And so it was really interesting to hear him kind of drag his feet a little bit, so to speak. Uh, what, got any memories The flight director says get back in. Uh-huh. Okay. There, they want you to come back in now. Back in? Back in. You. We've been t- talk to you for a while. Houston Mission Control, which was speaking to him, basically had to be kind of like a parent and said, you know, Edward, it's it's time to come back inside from your, your experience.
3: Yeah.
0: And I, I believe he even said it was one of the saddest points of his life to actually have to go back inside. In those first 30 or so years, spacewalks were very rare. That changed dramatically when the space station deployment started. And then we were doing... 10, 20 spacewalks per year, and now it's extremely common for an astronaut on the space station to do a spacewalk during their six-month tenure on the space station. So they went from being very rare to very common.
2: My name is Sunny Williams. I am a NASA astronaut. I was lucky enough uh, to stay up in space for 195 days on my first mission. So for women, I think that's the longest single stay in space. I became the record holder for women for the most spacewalks as well. Spacewalks are amazing. I think most of the public knows about the part where the people open the hatch and they come out and then they go start to work, but you're going out there for some serious work and it is, it is dangerous. You know, you are in space. There's a vacuum of space and uh, it's hot at some times, it's cold at other times, so you have to make sure your, your suit is all up to snuff. So the process of preparation for all of this takes a couple days. There's a lot of people on the ground who are working through all of these different pieces and parts of the spacewalks um, to get us ready. And then, of course, there's the actual choreography of how you're going to go out and change out these parts or do whatever you need to do out in space, run cables or add on different modules or whatever you're going to do. And so all of that has to be thought through.
1: While I was on board the spaceship, I thought it's such an unusual and rare place for people to be, maybe I should just try and do some ambient sound recordings of, of what you hear. For an astronaut, they're, they are the sounds of the forest. You're, you're used to those. I was doing a checkout on the spacesuit, and during the checkout we pressurize it, we depressurize it, we run it for a while, we, we you know activate the bleed valve and various things. All of those have kind of a distinctive sound. I recorded um, the ambient noise of what, when the when the fans and the pumps are running at steady state, that so, sort of a cross between a, a vacuum cleaner and a, and a microwave maybe, that sort of steady whining hum. I recorded that.
2: Generally, they're about six hours long, the actual time out in space. So you know, you have to get your body ready for that, which means you probably want to start the night before making sure you're hydrated. Making sure you eat the right thing so you're not going to get really hungry. Because all we carry out there is a a water, uh, like a a camelback inside the suit with us, type of thing on the front of your suit.
1: When you depressurize the suit, it suddenly exhales like I don't know, like someone's last breath with sort of a moan. It's just—it's a really mournful sound.
3: I remember every second I spent in the airlock. My name is Luca Parmitano. I am a European Space Agency astronaut. And in 2013, I became the first Italian astronaut to perform a spacewalk. And to me, the airlock was a little bit like a temple. That's I like to call it a temple of technology, because it's strangely uh, more quiet than any other module on the space station but also because it's where you get ready for for a spacewalk and in that sense it, it's a place where you are going to to be focused and you're going to be thinking about what it is like to be outside of a space station
1: you float headfirst into the airlock you are a crewmate floats feet first into the airlock because there's just room in there for two people head to toe. Uh, The people of the space station close the hatch behind you and then very gently and slowly you uh, pump all the air out of the airlock. You're floating weightless in there and it gets quieter and quieter. At first it's noisy because there's lots of air around you to conduct sound, but as the pressure drops, uh, the air gets thinner and thinner until there's no air at all and it's dead silent except for really... Um, the what you hear on the radio, the uh, the fans inside your suit, and and the company of your own breathing. <laughs> and that, it's kind of a reassuring sound to have. I reached down and turned what looks sort of like like you see on a ship where someone turns this big heavy metal wheel and it and it spins something that looks like a big manhole hatched open. That's what we go through to go outside—a big circular hatch—and then you reach through that huge hole you've created in the side of your spaceship. And there's just some fabric on the outside, of so like a like a sun shield. You push that fabric panel out of the way, and then instantaneously, you're at the doorstep of the universe. And finally, you are outside, uh, do a sort of a delicate little flip around to get pointed the right way, and somewhere along the way, you catch a full face view of the Earth. Whatever you thought the world looked like, it is more magnificent than that. And it's textured and nuanced, it looks nothing like a shiny, smooth globe or or a map where all the countries are different colors and North is always up. It is this great living, um, miraculous thing. And it stops your thought. And the other direction is an endless depth of, of black and forever. And then you realize, oh, geez, I came out here to do a bunch of work. And you, and you start gathering what you're doing and get your tools and start getting back on the timeline and the choreography of what you've practiced.
4: They do say there is no sound in space at points. You know, if I had the opportunity to space warp, what I feel, I would imagine it's really isolating. And in, in this sort of like, black mass of silence, really, that it is up there. All your senses must be on a pretty high alert, I would imagine. Each one of these sounds in the film ended up being made of multiple, multiple layers. And we were putting guitars in water. space suit we call the things through the space suit inside the suit there is air, so Sam will travel through that and then figuring out how to do it but how to do it believable so we got how we got a NASA and we're talking about you know these tools because at the beginning of the film they use these tools and they sent us pictures of these tools and also said they were like derivatives of these tools are in like car manufacturer, hospitals, because they're very high-end, they're very, you know, they're very accurate. And we were recording through these contact mics. So for a whole day, we went and stuck these mics on everything, every piece of machinery we could. Every, anything that would create this sound that we were recording through something, we would try. But You bang... The side of the ship, or whatever you're doing, or you're holding the, one of those tools, the vibration that you would hear would resonate through that suit into the air inside the space suit, and then you would conceive the sound through that.
0: And that's exactly what happens when you're on a spacewalk. Sometimes, when we wanted to speak to each other, we would just tap on the structure that the person was holding on to, because that way you didn't have to use the voice communication link, but the vibration along that structure would go to the other crew member and through their hand and kind of vibrate up their arm into their spacesuit and into their knowledge level.
2: I came back inside after my spacewalk and I said, wow, you you know, you guys, I could hear when the the motor started running and I got a funny look and I can't remember who exactly said, you can't hear anything in space, what are you talking about? What was I missing? What was that? Must have been something in the suit. And then I stopped and thought about it for a little while and I think, I think I was right, actually. My hand was on the handrail of the mass canister. The mass canister obviously was in contact with the platform which held the motor, and I could feel all that vibration, and I could hear it.
4: So this space chatter that you would hear, because they're always in constant contact with what's going on. And we got hold of this guy, NASA, and we got, I put them in a hotel room in uh, Florida. So they knew everything that they would say and it was priceless, because it was real. The The radios are going because you're fishing. You know, you want someone to be on the other end of it. You're hoping that sound's going to turn into a voice. And that's that feeling of, oh God, am I going to be rescued or am I going to live or whatever.
3: I would like to call myself a friend of Chris Hatfield.
1: Luca Parmitano, buongiorno. How are you, Luca? Luca is a a tremendously capable and interesting human being, and he's an astronaut. And he had a uh, pretty interesting sequence of experiences during his spacewalks. I'll let him tell you about those.
3: It was a spacewalk that was going extremely well until it went a little bit south so this is the 16th of july of 2013 and chris cassidy and i were going to perform our second spacewalk i believe around 45 minutes into that the eva the back of my head felt something cold and wet so i felt water i called houston and i told him that i felt a lot of water in the helmet i thought that this was going to be a nuisance also i as a rookie, I just didn't want to stop. I, I wanted to be outside. I wanted to do my job. I wanted to finish what what I have been preparing for. And then I realized that the water was creeping up. I could feel it reaching my forehead. And I told Chris, look, I, th- I think this feels like a lot of water. And about that time, we received the order to terminate the EVA. Terminate EVA. And that is the moment that we separated because our cables were routed in two different directions. We said, "Okay, I'll see you at the airlock. I had to make a motion where I was basically upside down relatively to the Earth and the space station. And at that moment, that's when the sun set. On orbit, because of the angular speed of the space station, a sunset really goes by fast. One moment you have light and the next you are in complete utter darkness. That's the, also the moment where the water completely reached my ears, covered my ears, I, isolated me from the sound. And soon enough, I found out that I couldn't even talk because when I told Chris and the ground that, that I that I couldn't see my position, they didn't reply. They They didn't hear me. How long would I have before the water completely filled up my helmet and I couldn't breathe anymore. And so I decided that I had to find my way back on my own even though I couldn't see anything. Now this is where hours and hours, countless hours, hundreds of hours of training come into play because even though I couldn't see exactly where I was going, I could picture it in my mind and also because of the safety tether I could feel a little bit of a pull. When I did get to the airlock, luckily, the light inside is always on. I could at least see through the water in the inside of the airlock. And so I went inside and then I felt Chris coming inside. And the next thing I know is that Chris is squeezing my hand and I, I squeeze it back. Chris was making sure that I was still alive. Next thing I know is that the repressurization is complete. They hop they open the, the hatch and they pull me out of the airlock and they take the helmet off and they start wiping my face and all this water is flying around in bubbles. And the look on their faces, they look so worried and so relieved at the same time. I always say that that was a very good day for, for spaceflight. We learned something that we didn't know. You know, the next design of, of a spacesuit will not have this problem. It will have other problems, but not this one. People ask me, how did you stay calm? How didn't you panic? And the reason is because I, I knew my capabilities, I knew the space station, I knew my suit, and so I rather than focusing on the problem, I was thinking about the solution.
1: There's a gracefulness to living in space because you're weightless. You are suddenly this beautiful, elegant, three-dimensionally moving superhero of a character that can fly. And, and not fly majestically, just fly magically. And then one day, you put on your pressure suit, you climb into your little spaceship and you come thundering back down through the atmosphere. Suddenly all of that serenity is gone. You're focused on the machinery. Gravity re-exerts its uh, oppression on you, of squishing you down into your chair. There's the great noise of coming back into the atmosphere, roar like a train, and then wham, you're back on Earth. You then force yourself up out of your chair. Your body suddenly has to fight gravity to balance and to lift your blood. You open up the hatch and you are surrounded by all noisy, uh, undirected, multicolored um, people. And you just kind of have to let it wash over you and realize that that particular phase of life is over and you're back into the tumult of normality. BBC News at 6 o'clock. The United Nations
4: has accused Islamic State...
1: The physical side of it, the nausea, the body readaptation, that's just, you gotta work through that and go through a full rehab for several months. Mm -hmm. But there's also a little bit of uh, readapting just to the disorganized, brute noise and unpredictable nature of life itself. And, uh, and that takes some getting used to as well. It's both physiological and psychological. In practically nothing, no payments for months. Maybe it makes us slightly more grateful for the, uh, for the experience of space flight itself.
4: To be that free, to be on top of the world, if you like, and then to come back home and you know, have to go and wash your car, I bet at night. They feel, I was up there looking down, and it was amazing. And not many of us will ever get to do that. I bet they relive that in their minds on the dark night.
0: <laughs> I can tell you that in my dreams last night, I was going on to another Hubble Space Telescope flight. <laughs> I tell people it's much like any other thing that you really like that you you might be somewhat addicted to. Space flight is like that. And I made a commitment to my family after selfishly flying four times that I wouldn't do it again, so I will not fly again.
3: I tell people that the reason why we have such a hard time describing what we see and what we feel is because human languages grow following what we see and what we experience, and our languages are just not evolved enough to describe something that has happened only in the past 50 years.
2: I think space is really peaceful and a great place to be reflective. You don't have to worry about the commute to work or get, getting in a traffic jam or waiting
3: in line to get your cup of coffee. Nothing has changed. Nothing will ever be the same.
2: Just people honking their horns and yelling and screaming is not quite there. You know, you're in a, a nice peaceful place, like being at home on the weekend.
3: Nothing has changed, you know, you, you left and six months later you come back and everything is exactly as it was. But for you, for as an individual, nothing will ever be the same.
1: Instantaneously, you are at the doorstep of the universe. And somewhere along the way, you catch a full-face view of the earth, and it stops your thought.